0: Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a global consultant, trainer, and executive coach, public speaker, author, and the creator of Squareball. It's David Lutz. How are you doing, Dave? David?
1: Really good. Nice to be here.
0: Thank you for the opportunity to talk about your rise to the challenge. First thing we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up?
1: Well, you know, it's. It's it's a pride thing, really. I was from a small, I'm from a small village in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes area, and uh, we had 1,250 people. I think we have 1,700 now, <clears throat> and uh, everybody knows everyone else's business. My mom and dad were both school teachers all of their lives in Trumansburg. Every one of my friends had my parents as teachers. I had my folks, my parents, seven times between them. Um, so. The other cool thing about the village is that my great-great-great-great-grandfather was given the land, uh, uh, he was the joint co-founder of the village after the Revolutionary War. So he was given the land as payment, and uh, he set up a a pub and a tavern, and his uh, brother-in-law set up a grist mill and married, well, his brother-in-law, and uh, they formed the village. And so you know, we're kind of rooted in, in the community. And it's, uh, it's one of those places where it's dominated by sport. It's dominated by community service. It's if you want to build a new playground, the whole village shows up at the school and constructs it. Uh, when you go fishing, you bump into your neighbor, you know, and it's, and it's also the home of the highest falls east of the Rocky mountains. It's higher than Niagara. And it's, uh, it's Indian land. It's uh, traditional American Indian, original uh, tribes and clans. So it's just a wealth of history, tremendous uh, scenery, stories to be told all the time. And the other thing, when I was growing up, it was the home of the Moog synthesizer. You're far too young to remember this, but uh, the original synthesizer bought by the Beatles, bought by the Rolling Stones, uh, was in Trumansburg, New York. So in terms of... Uh, what I was involved in pick a subject, any subject, uh, all majors, all three major sports, basketball, football, baseball. Uh, we were a sports family. Uh, my brother and I spent our days making up new games in sports. My mother worried every day when we left the house for fear that we would come back bloody and broken. Uh, we our on our bikes in the woods, hunting, fishing, trapping, sport. That's what, especially my brother did me. I was student council acting, uh, drama sport, the community service, the captain of every team president of every club. And my other big interest was girls. So, uh, it was, uh, it was quite normal. And, uh, and we did quite well at it. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, it, it, that's what it was. My passions, my personally were, were reading, inventing games, sports, storytelling, acting. I was known when I was younger as the smart aleck, wise guy who always had a quick answer. But at the same time, I was never afraid to be out front, take a risk, lead the team, lead the adventure, try something new. Um, and, uh, I first place I wanted when I got uh, when I, I had children. The first thing I wanted to show them was the school that I went to. I wanted to go back and show them the school. And uh, my mother went to the same school for twelve years when she was a kid, born in my uncle's farm. Same school for twelve years. Taught in the same school for thirty-two years. Uh, you know, and so I wanted life around the school, uh, the sports we played. My parents were at every game. Uh, my friends and neighbors and cousins always reminded me that my brother was better than me, but, uh, and he was, <laughs> he was a lot better than me. Anyway, that was life. I mean, it was, you, you rode your, you rode your bike everywhere. The, the main street was less than a mile long. We don't have a traffic light. You could be to, be at school in 10, 15 minutes at max on your bike uh, walk across the street and walk for miles in the, in orchards and farmlands. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was good, good life. Really good.
0: Do you think the living in a small community helped you find your passions a lot easier than if you were living in a big city life, or do you think that it was definitely harder living in that small community?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, there were 110 kids in my graduating class. I would imagine 79 of them have never moved or been further than about 20 miles away from the village in their life. A handful of us were fortunate to have our sights set differently. And I'll tell that part of the story in a minute, but, um, we didn't dream or think beyond the borders of Trumansburg very easily. And because we're a small town, therefore the teams were small. Therefore, we had great notoriety in the little villages around us. But when it came to playing Ithaca, which is the home of Cornell, which is Ithaca College, which is you know the big city with only 30,000 people, um, to play against them in sport, Uh, was a huge deal to beat them was even better, but you didn't set your sights beyond Cornell maybe. And uh, you weren't going to get a scholarship unless you knew somebody or unless you were exceptional. Uh, You didn't dream of going to uh, an Ivy league school or a top 10 or a big 12 somewhere else in the country. Uh, You were going to stay within the community college or the state colleges of the area. So in terms of education, you didn't think too far afield, um, because we were small in the sporting world. Your chances of getting a scholarship were very slim. Uh, that said, my brother, who is my hero, I respect him more than any man on the planet. Uh, he he got a football scholarship, and when he was too small and got nearly killed. Playing uh, as a quarterback, he got a baseball scholarship. Florida State offered him a scholarship. Uh, You know, he these were big name schools, and he and he had he had his shot, and he took it. Um, I tried out for the Cincinnati Reds when I was fifteen, and got picked for the final team, and never heard from them again uh i tried out for pittsburgh i tried out with kansas city and i'll tell that's another story later but you dreamed of the big shot but you know it was never really never really gonna happen so um we i don't know anyone other than a few of us who were part of the model united nations conference for example who'd ever been to new york you know it's 400 miles away but you never, we've never been there. You Mm -hmm. just don't go there. It's a scary place. So we were, we were constrained by our geography, by the limitations of the village. It was a farming tourist community. um, So people didn't dream big. So it was, it was for me, just as I I might, I was going to mention this later. I'll mention it now. When I was 15, and I was playing summer baseball. I got hit in the head on the left side, and it knocked me out. It tore a hole in my retina, and uh, its a macular hole resulted. You won't know him, but if you look it up, Tony Canigliero from the Boston Red Sox had exactly the same injury at the same time. I wrote him a long letter, and he never wrote back. That's why I'm a Yankee fan and not a Red Sox fan. Uh, so, But what it did was it, it ruined my depth perception. So I had to change my direction the way I'm thinking. I'm no longer going to be a second baseman. I'm going to be a pitcher. I'm no longer going to bat 600. I'm going to bat minus four. You know, it's – it's. Uh, so that changed my perspective on sport. And instead of being a fullback or a, or, a, or a wide receiver, I now have to be a kicker or a punter only because insurance wouldn't cover us any other way. So I'm – my whole last two years of high school changed dramatically and I focused much more on politics, school politics, social, uh, ag- social, not social action, but, um, community service. Uh, I still play sport, but I also got into dramatics and I got into things like the model United Nations and boys state and that kind of stuff. So I was kind of setting my sights differently. Um, and then, when I in my final year, in my junior year, when I got selected as an exchange student, the whole world changed. Now suddenly, we'd had exchange students stay with us from South Africa, from Australia, from Japan, and that kind of lit a fire in me. You know, I'm thinking, oh. But uh, when I got selected, they offered me Bolivia or Australia. Oh no, they offered me Australia. Then some Americans in Australia got very drunk at the age of 16, 17, and they banned American students from ever coming again. So then they offered me Bolivia or South Africa. Now, all I knew about Bolivia was American protests in the street, (laughs) people burning American flags, a revolution every second year, no thanks. So I chose South Africa, and uh, it changed my life, completely changed my life.
0: You talked about your brother was a huge inspiration for you. Is there a key moment that you kind of told yourself, this is who I want to look up to in a way?
1: Yes. Yes. And he will be offended when I tell tell this story, but that's too bad. He's two years older than me. Uh, He was Mr. Most admired, most dramatic, most handsome, most whatever guy in town. Uh, and I would go to a school dance at another, another town, and uh, I saw a cute girl. I went up to ask her to dance, and she said, okay. And as we start to dance, she looks at me and said, you're John Lutz's brother, aren't you? And I go, yeah. Is he here? You know, and, and so I became known as John Lutz's brother as, as opposed to Dave Lutz. So there's this shadow that I have to walk in. Shoes I have to fill, especially when he went off to college. But so that's not the moment. The moment was he was a freshman in high school playing varsity ball, had a gun for an arm. He was a five-tool player in every sense of the word. And he hit a grand slam to win the game. And he just got, when he got to home plate and we all, crowded and i was a bat boy so we we all rushed up to home plate and he just looked and said cool you know it was not ego it's not about you know and i always admire the fact that he worked so incredibly hard i watched him discipline himself practice his running practice his throwing practice his batting he would check his traps in the morning Uh, get up four o'clock in the morning and check his animal traps. He would skin the animal, stretch it, come upstairs, wash his hands, get his cereal. And while he's eating cereal, he's doing his hand grips with his left hand. And why is it? Why? Well, because he wants to be a switch hitter and he has to get his left arm and hand stronger. And I watched this guy for years and years and uh, he just never stopped. He had a heart for the game. He had the skill, but he never believed that he had enough. And he just, and he went on to teach middle ed. He taught middle uh, special education for for 25 years, and uh, he stuck at it in ways that I could never have done. So anyway, back in those days, he was he was the guy. My dad was ahead of him, but uh, but uh, John was the sportsman that that set this raised the bar really high. I wanted to be him.
0: As you're being known as your brother's brother. What did you do mentally for you? Were you trying to always figure out a way to how to change the identity? to?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, did I, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I had to adopt a different identity. <clears throat> you know, I had to, <clears throat> he wasn't an honor student. Uh, I tell him frequently that I think he read one book in high school and that was called the kid who batted a thousand. I'll never forget it. <clears throat> but I was a, I was a voracious reader. Uh, I was always writing stuff. Um, and so I made my mark as a, as a scholar, as an honor student, and in as president of the student council and all that kind of stuff. And I made my mark as the innovator, the leader I mean, for example, my dad was the head of the student – the teachers' association. I was the head of the student council. We formed the student-teacher association, and we ran the school for two years. I mean, you know, and there's where I got my buzz and my drive was that I was shaping the direction of the school, encouraging kids who were left out, who didn't feel part of it. Um, So that was kind of my persona, but it was a natural thing. It wasn't that I was acting it out. you know. It, it uh, My brother and I are completely different in that regard. And, and I discovered early that I had something to offer that wasn't just on the sports field.
0: <clears throat> you talked about that you went out and tried for major league teams. Was being a baseball player that dream job for you? Or was there always a different direction that you wanted to go in?
1: You know, um, that's an excellent question. I wanted to go to annapolis naval academy for example and i applied i got interviewed but because i did latin instead of german and french uh and the reason i did that was because i had a busy schedule with school politics at sport uh and because i and therefore that disqualified me and then also i was legally blind in my left eye from the injury they disqualified me and so i was i wanted to be a math teacher like my dad or an English teacher like my mom, you know, that that they were so good at it. And I just admired the way kids responded to them and how they just extracted the best out of kids. I just love that whole thing. Uh, I knew I was talented. I knew I had good, some good natural ability, but I didn't have what my brother had. So I decided pretty early on that I, that this professional route wasn't going to be me. Uh, I, I tried out six times uh and got good reviews did well but my brother excelled uh but it wasn't until i got to south africa that i started having second thoughts because there's a part of that story that just you know took me in a different direction on the baseball front
0: when you went to south africa was that during the time that you were pursuing education with college or was that before you made that
1: round yeah, the, the way it works is when you finish high school, you get to take another year off before you go to college. So it's an extra year in a high school in another country. And so I was enro- I went there. I, they enrolled me in a private boys' school near Cape Town and uh, wearing a uniform and all the rest. But I wasn't expected to, to study, really. I was more of a figurehead student who was part of the international liaison group, you know, as that the Rotary Club was trying to promote. So um, I knew that when I got back to the States in the following year that, you know, I'm going to have to make some hard decisions. And my SATs weren't particularly good, considering even though I was a pretty good student. And so I knew I was going to have to take them again. I was going to have to, I was looking at Penn State, I was looking at Ohio State, uh, and a few places like that. But when I got to South Africa, the direction of my life changed so dramatically that that uh, I almost forgot about that. My dad didn't, you know, he was my recruiter back home uh, or my, my recruiting manager, my, what's the word I'm looking for? My manager. He was (laughs) was shopping me around. Um, So uh, yeah, when I got to South Africa, the first thing I discovered was that I'm an all American boy and I'm pretty boring and I'm going to have to let my hair down and I'm going to have to be cooler than, any other kid. And I'm going to have to be more wisecracky than ever before. And I, basically I made myself into a pain in the butt and my host family, my first host family was really annoyed with me very early on. It was midwinter there and there in the South African, in the Southern hemisphere, I was cold. I was angry. I was upset. I'm missing my girlfriend. I was missing my family. Uh, School sucked. I mean, what's a private I mean, boys' school wearing a uniform, you know. And I decided to just be a rebel. So much so. Oh, and in the middle of this, in the first couple of months, I discovered that the president of the South African Baseball Federation was in the Rotary Club that sponsored me. And when he found out I played baseball, uh uh-huh, okay. Now, they'd been playing ball in South Africa for 30 years before that. I didn't know. I brought my glove and my spikes and a hat and a rubber-coated ball because I knew I'd have to throw against a brick wall maybe. But that was just because I liked doing it, not because I had any idea that ball might be possible. So he hooked me up with a local club, and uh, now I'm in my element. I mean, a small-town boy from upstate New York is a nobody on the, on the radar of professional sports or celebrity sport. Now suddenly – I'm in the limelight as the, you know, I mean, when I did my first practice game, five, four newspapers showed up and interviewed me. Oh, this is funny. And they interviewed me and uh, they'd heard somewhere in the media about a knuckleball. And they asked me, do you, can you throw a knuckleball? I said, yeah, sure, I can throw a knuckleball. Now, I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with a knuckleball, but I can <laughs> throw one. Anybody can throw one. I mean, there's the, but the next day, headlines in three or four of the newspapers, sports sections, New York knuckler arrives in town, you know. And it was really funny throughout the next couple of years, or at least the first year, I had batters scared spitless because they were worried that I was going to throw this unhittable pitch. Now my catcher and I worked it out. We had four pitches, but what do you do is he'd give me a one for a fastball and I'd and I'd shake him off, two curve, three slider, four screwball, and then he'd give me one again, which is really what I wanted. And then I'd look at him and I'd smile and I'd go, Yeah, that's it. And you could see the batter sort of you know beginning to twitch and you know, worried that I'm gonna throw this knuckleball that will embarrass him. Anyway, uh they found out soon enough that I couldn't throw one. Uh but so baseball became my thing, and in a very short time after the season started, the uh, two things happened. Number one, the they pick an all-star team for the province, and I got picked for the all-star team It's called Western Province All uh, Western, just the Western Province team, and uh, and I was the starting pitcher for Western Province. Uh, the other thing was the Rotary Club decided that they had had enough of me i found out a year later that they were actually planning to send me home first time in the history of rotary i was that bad uh and they said we're going to send you to a christian camp so i saw the brochure and i said well they're going to do bible study and they're, they're going to do this and that and then there's sport and i go okay i can you know trampoline i'm good on the trampoline other sports i'm yeah i can do those i can learn any sport i love sport but I got, when I saw that there was a sort of a, a Bible element to it, I went to my host father and I said, look, I'll go on this stupid camp uh, because it's spring break. And, uh, but you need to let them know to keep their religious mitts off me. Now, I'm saying this because I'd never held a Bible in my hand, never been to Sunday school, never been to church, didn't even know the most basic Bible Christian stories other than Christmas, which I doubted. Uh, and uh my dad was an a, an atheist and my mom was a closet agnostic so i had no absolutely zero reference points for this anyway i went to the the bus to get to go to the camp that was taking us into the country all boys and the lawyer who was going to be the head of the camp met me and i saw my host father kind of whisper in his ear you know this kid's got problems and the host the uh, leader came and spoke to me and tried to be nice and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, look, just keep your religious mitts off me. I have nothing to do with your religious religious stuff. And so uh, he described me later in an in a interview he did as an angry young man. So uh, so long story short, lots of sport. The leader of the camp, the tent that I was in was a Baptist minister. I think he wanted to quit the ministry by about Thursday. Uh, my questions were so tough and I was so argumentative and just a wise guy type. And besides that, I could do a one and a half flip on the trampoline and that it raised my status. Uh, um, but then on the Thursday night, the leader of the camp shared the message I'd never heard before. I went to him afterwards to say, thank you. And, uh, Uh, found myself grabbing him by the shirt shaking him uncontrollably crying and shouting why has nobody ever told me this before this is the most amazing news i've ever heard and he said we must sit down and we did and he prayed with me and my life I, i i'd like to say then that it was at that point i didn't know really what it meant but i hung a sign around my neck that kind of said now i'm under new management and i really didn't know what that meant so now i got rotary club has decided that They're going to let me stay. When I got back, apparently I was a better kid. Baseball has got me in the limelight. i am on the Western Province All-Star team. And then came November of that year when the Western Province Baseball Association organized a special All-Star game. Because the owner of the Detroit Tigers was in town on vacation. His name is John Fetzer. And he threw out the first ball, and he sat in the press box, and the media was all around him, and it was a big deal. And I was the starting pitcher. I was only allowed to throw three innings. Um, I did. I struck out nine, walked one, one hit. You know, it was that kind of day. Awesome northwest wind, the northeast wind, which made my curve just unhittable. Long story short, we won the game. Uh, went to, That was called to the press box. And uh, Fetzer walked right up to me, right into my face and the cameras clicking and people writing, you know, it was one of those, I, I've never had this before. This was just so weird. And he said, son, you got a mighty fine curveball. What are you doing next month? What are you doing in February? And I said, I'm an exchange student. You know, he said, I want you in Tigertown for spring training, not trip, not single a, not double a, not triple a, go straight to Tigertown for spring training. And so I'm, I'm I'm sw- sweating and sp- can't breathe. I mean, but I said to him, you know, my life has begun to change, and I really need to finish this year. and And so, thank you, but no. And he was a bit shocked. And anyway, next day, sports headlines: stupid American turns down pro offer. And so, I I got I got a hundred clippings from the newspapers, sent them to my dad. He then contacted. One university after another in the U.S. saying, look at his stats from high school. Look at his stats from South Africa. They had no idea whether South Africa was any good or not in baseball. But, but the Fetzer himself had offered me a shot at the Tigers, and he turned it down. Anyway, I met a girl who was a Christian. I continued to play ball. I did really, really well, uh, and I was aiming to finish my year. And uh, I knew I had decisions to make. You, my dad, meanwhile, had contacted Ohio University and they were offering me a sight unseen scholarship to play ball. Full tuition, full everything, sight unseen. Didn't even watch me play, no scouts. I got back home and I started doing some playing ball again for American Legion and uh, doing a job. <clears throat> and the draft lottery came up. And in those days, 1 to 365 was in one bin. January 1 to December 31st was in another. They reach in, compare the numbers. My mom sat home watching it on live TV, and I was number 52, which meant I could probably, with my record, with my high school career and all the rest of it, probably end up in Vietnam leading the troops, which really wasn't my idea of fun. Uh, The same time, I, but same, almost the same week. So I had to make a decision: Do I apply for a deferment? Do I go to school? If I go to school, I can get a, a student deferment and not go to not go into the military. Uh, about the same week, just for the heck of it, I went to the Kansas City tryout, Kansas City Royals for the baseball academy. And I'd been working on a new changeup and a new uh, fastball. A new fastball. I was told I was my my. Mechanics were wrong, so I'd been working a lot on that. And uh, they were only going to—they they had 120 boys trying out. They were only going to pick 20, and I got picked. My dad's now beside himself. Oh, he's got to decide now—is it going to be, you know, call John, John Fetzer, go to Detroit, or is it Kansas City, or is it Ohio U, or you know, what's going on? And uh, I turned them down. I said, no, I. I, I I think I want to go back to South Africa. And my dad freaked out. And uh, that same week, we got a call from South African the club saying, we want you to come back on a contract to promote and teach and coach and play. Uh, and also in the, in the so-called colored townships. And this was the heat of apartheid. So working with a so-called colored team, non-white team, as they called them, was exceptional and illegal, but we were going to do it. But he also wanted me to bring out equipment, balls, uniforms, and all the rest. And while you're at it, we want your dad to find another player to bring out with you. So now I've got Ohio U, I got Kansas City, I got Detroit, I got the Army, and I've got a contract chance to go back and play baseball. They'll find me a job, give me a place to live, but all I do is play ball. And besides that, I've had this change in my life as a christian thing and my whole world's changed my whole direction has changed so uh my parents and i we sat down and had a long chat first thing that happened was i got a 4f deferment that said i'm permanently deferred from the military because of my blind eye go figure i was complaining to god about that one for a long time but now suddenly i'm not going to go to vietnam i get to go back to south africa I turned down the scholarship, didn't, of course, go to Kansas City, uh, and arrived back. And my parents bought it. They accepted it. They said, okay, you're a big boy. You're 19 years old. You you can do your thing. Nobody else from Trumansburg had ever left the town, so this was kind of cool. And I arrived back and uh, just did church stuff, youth work, baseball, and more baseball, and a girlfriend, and, uh, that was my life. Oh. And then the other player, the second player came out. Uh, he was from Ithaca and he, we did that year together and we made a big mark on the, on the game. Uh, and, uh, we finished that year. And I'm, I think I calculated that in the, because the seasons I played baseball high school summer all year in South Africa for 11, 10 months. Back to home for all summer. Back to South Africa for another year. I threw seventy-five thousand pitches in that period, wow. and I was my shoulder was shot. And uh, but long story short, we did the year, and the game was picking up. More Americans were wanting to come out, and in the middle of all this, the coach of Cornell contacted Rob Nelson, who's the owner of Big League Chew Bubblegum. And said, Rob, we really think this would be a good idea for you. He'd finished Cornell three years, but four years before. Uh, or, yeah, Cornell. And uh, he went to meet with my dad. My dad sold him on the idea to come out and play ball. And then a month later, there was Rob. Big as life, uh, total hot dog, great lefty, cheated on his pickoff move, but I don't care. It was a balk, but nobody called it. He's on my team. We're good. Um, and we became really, really good friends and we played ball together for a few years, you know, and it was, it was really, really, uh, really a special time. And we remain good friends to this day. Uh, actually we didn't see each other until last year after 45 years. So anyway, uh, in the middle of all this, I decided to, um, to study. I went to university of Cape town to do psychology Um, I was on a scholarship there, not a sports scholarship, but somebody pulled some strings, uh, and, uh, got very involved with, with youth work, uh, and was a very, I was billed as the American Christian sportsman. And so I'm now in conferences and in big meetings and rallies and things with youth for Christ and others all over the show. And so that became my life, um, in those days, I felt a very strong pull to the ministry. I, I felt I wanted to do that. And so in about 1970, in 1975, I had to make a decision. Uh, I got married before that. Uh, my family needed. I wanted to go back to the U.S. to study. I wanted to see my family. we were having some troubles. Um, and uh, I turned out, I walked away from baseball and went back home. And uh, was there for two years. Uh, didn't study again. And, but I got a call from my old mentor, pastor friend from South Cape Town and said, we want you back. Not to play baseball, David, not to play baseball. We want you back to uh, lead our university program and we want you to go full time, And which I did. And uh, eventually then I went to theological college for, and studied for four years. Got ordained. And was now, oh, in, sorry, one funny thing. In the middle of a sermon in an obscure place in some middle part of South Africa, I see four guys sitting at the back of the church in the back pew. And they're kind of looking at me and kind of you know, waving. And, and I, I thought, that one guy looks familiar. Long story short, he and I played baseball together back in Cape Town. He started a team locally, and he wanted me – to come and play again and uh, and coach one of their young players, you know, getting developing as a pitcher. And I played one game, blew my arm out, blew my knee out, and uh, decided I better just, just keep preaching rather than playing. You know, that would probably be safer. Um, but now remember that all of this, 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 what I was involved with now was um, in the heat of apartheid. Uh, I mean, the church, I was pastoring a a non-denominational and we build ourselves as a non-racial church. So you didn't do that easily because if you had people in your home for too long a period who were of a different race, you get arrested. They go to jail, you go to jail. Uh, But we set our stall out publicly to be non-racial, non-denominational. And uh, that was good preparation for me because that was going to set the scene for my thinking about the, the work that I now do or began to do later globally and with other cultures in other, in other countries. But uh, uh, so my family had more issues, <laughs> and uh, I hadn't seen them for a while. Uh, by the way, my atheist dad called me up in the middle of all this and said he respected me and admired what I was doing. Even though you turned down Detroit, Ohio State, Kansas City, you know, even though he turned it all down, I, you know, it took that was took him took him ten years to get there, but he did it, uh, and uh, went back to the U.S., helped my family get back together. Uh, was a chaplain at a school, worked for a big university in Chicago. Was a recruiter, and I started thinking about. Um, you know, my own career, you know, I, was, I had left the ministry, but now I got to think of what to do with myself. And, uh, wow, we gone, we've got 30 minutes, right? Uh, so uh, I, I think I've mentioned this to you before, that on the plane ride, so I want to go back a minute, on the trip from Cape Town back to New York, I sat with a vice president of HR for some company. And we spent 20-plus hours together, and he finally looked me in the eye after all this time of counseling me, listening to me, and he just said, David, you need to get into human resource development. You need to get into human capital management. You need to train leaders. You need to develop, unlock the potential in people. If you don't do that, you're going to be miserable. I had no idea what human resources was. I, I, I never had any reference point for this whatsoever. So anyway, I did the two years in the States, but then my my first wife's uh, family had issues in England. But I was offered a position in a church there in the meantime, so let's go back to England. And uh, let's go to England for the first time and sort out my wife's family. The position with the church fell through, and now suddenly I'm realizing, you know, i got to get a real job. Uh, And so it's really weird, and I... There's a serendipity component. There's a spooky component to all of this. I'm working, and a spiritual component. I'm working for a selling computer software for a quality management company in Europe that's based out of Ohio. And that organization belonged to a in an, an association that was founded by or, or, or supported by The father of the third industrial revolution who taught the Japanese after World War II, Dr. Deming. Don't know him from a bar of soap. All I know is I like what he says. My boss at some point says, I I can't go to this meeting at Cambridge University. Can you go for for me? It's a meeting to talk about some of Deming's principles. I went, the subject, I'll never forget it, was how to drive out fear in a workplace, in the workplace of work people are scared what are they scared of why are they scared what's the fear factor here and how do you get rid of it how, what does leaders what do leaders need to do i got hooked i'm looking for a a philosophy a way of dealing with the world working in the world that's compatible with my christian beliefs but at the same time unlocks people's potential and gives me a chance to interact to see them shine and blossom you know i mean this was me man i'm i'm wild about the idea a couple of weeks later, I spoke at a workshop. Some people, the, the, by the way, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union had just happened. So all these new countries in Central and Eastern Europe were trying to find themselves, get an identity of some kind. I spoke at a workshop in London. Some people from the Czech Republic heard me, invited me to be a keynote speaker and seminar leader at a big conference that was happening in Prague, uh, a few months later. And, uh, the name of the conference was East meets West. And this is where Western leaders were meeting with former Soviet country leaders, comp- company managers, and trying to, and paying for them to attend so that we can talk for a week about how to adopt Western style leadership principles and really capitalism. And, uh, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at the opening address and it was called Deming management, Deming quality management. What I knew about Deming management was dangerous. I mean, really, I'd read a bit. I'd been to a workshop. I was at Cambridge university. My boss, you know, talked me into it, but what I knew was really seriously lacking. And uh, when I got to the conference, I discovered on the agenda on the brochure that I was being billed as Dr. Lutz. Now, Barely got a bachelor's degree, but now I'm Dr. Lutz in the subject of Deming Management. So anyway, even though I stood up in front of hundreds of people and said, look, I'm not a doctor in this subject, just a learner, consultant type guy, didn't matter. I became an expert overnight. Did my workshops, packed. Get to the end of the week, a delegation from Lithuania came to me, offered me a really, really weird gift. Uh, I wished I'd kept it. It was really strange. And they said, we'd like you to come and help us transform our new nation on the principles of Dr. Deming. I go, hell's bells. What am I going to do? And I remember Dr. Deming had told Ford Motor Company he wouldn't help them unless the owners, the top people, invited him. So I said to them, well, unless – Unless uh, the, I get a, I get an invite from the top, there's no point. I don't want to waste my time or yours. They went and had a little huddle, came back and said, if the prime minister invites you, will that be okay? So what am I going to say? So I said, yeah, okay. A week later, I get a fax from the prime minister with 80 people of all the top leaders of all sectors of society. Come and teach us how to change our create our new country on the principles of Dr. Deming. Fortunately, one of Deming's interns was a a professor at USC and she was Lithuanian. I called her up. I said, help. And we put together a program. We sent it off to them and said, we'll do it for free. Just pay for our flights and our accommodation. We were pumped. We were excited. We're going to help a whole new country. Nothing. Heard nothing. Week, two weeks, month, two months, nothing. And we called it off. But what that did is it, propelled me into a world that I didn't even know existed and I had to discover what it is who am I what is my message what is my passion what is it that I wake up every day wanting to do what gives me the greatest adrenaline buzz I can imagine is it baseball no I'm a New York Yankee fan that's enough watching my son play ball that's enough but I realized that I wake up every day wanting to help people learn and grow and improve the same way my parents taught their students, the same way my brother excelled at what he did, and I wanted to take the principles that were important to me as a Christian, wrap them into the management, the language of management and leadership, and change the world. You know, that was was me. And I won't go into all the details, but a series of events just happened after that, and working with NATO, working with Polish communists, working with um, Ukrainian mafia, uh, on and on and on. My whole life over the next 10, 12 years was just focused on training, developing leaders and managers in the former Soviet Union and in developing countries. And that's how I cut my teeth on how to be a human capital development, talent management, organizational development consultant and coach. So.
0: When you're looking back at your career, is there any kind of regret or moments that you thought maybe I should have taken an offer with this pro baseball team, or do you look at the path that you've taken? And it was the greatest learning that you could have done for yourself as a personal growth opportunity.
1: No, I I don't regret saying no to the baseball or even to the scholarship. Um, And and in a sense, you know, it's easy to say this in hindsight. I mean, sort of 40 years, 50 years later, 40 years later, um, if I hadn't, if I had taken the scholarship, if I had gone to play pro ball, which I wasn't good enough to do, I really didn't have what it takes. I'm too short um, and and I don't love the game the way my brother did, for example, Um, if I had done that then that experience with Deming or that experience with Ukraine and uh, the uh, they would never have happened. Uh, I wouldn't have met my, my second wife who's Ukrainian. We wouldn't have had, you know, 20, where is he? 20 years ago. Uh, after, you know, 25 years, 25 years ago, now 20 years later to have a boy like this. I've got kids in England. I've got a grandson. Uh, and I, all much of that wouldn't have happened. All, all of it would, none of it would have happened, wouldn't, would have happened if I had said yes to, to a, a route going down a different route. It's easy to look back and say, you know, what if, uh, but I, as I said, I hung that sign around my neck and I kind of felt like, well, it's not that I want to hold him responsible for my mistakes, but he's, he's got the, He's got the rudder on this one, and uh, I got to just put the put the sails up and hope that I go in the right direction. I do regret not uh, completing my education. Uh, in one sense, I enrolled in um, because I'm, my lifestyle was all over the show. Uh, I had to enroll with correspondence or distance learning programs. So I signed up with, for example, the Chartered Management Institute in England. They looked at my track record. They looked at my business career, my career, and my history, and said, "We're going to exempt you from two associates' degree and one bachelor's degree, and put you straight into an executive develop, executive program that will be the, you know, two steps short of a of a master's degree." But you have to be in a real job to do it. You have to be in a real company. You can't be a consultant. You can't be. Uh, picking and choosing your life. You have to be locked in so you can do the project work and the distance learning work properly. And I started and I got this close and I'm, and it's still this close uh, so many years later. And I regret not finishing that. And there are a few technical qualifications in the world that I live and work in that I wished I'd had. That said uh, I've spent a lot of time picking up the pieces of well-meaning PhDs who do what I do, who haven't got a clue how to talk to a struggling Ethiopian middle manager who is struggling with how to motivate and encourage his people. And he, he gives him a—he refers them to a white paper he wrote. I'm not saying I'm better than that, but I'm the kind of guy that'll get his hand bloody, hands bloody and dirty and get alongside this guy and find out what really makes him tick and why it is that he feels he's failing to motivate his people properly. And, uh, and uh, that's the kind of style I have. Um, so regrets, I don't regret, uh, no, South Africa is a definite, absolutely critical. Come No, I, there's, there are a few, but uh, God is good. He's He's helped me sort of, salvage some really dumb things I've done and uh, turn me around. So,
0: I think there's always been a huge conversation with people where does really the education help you with the real world situations that you go through? And I look at the time where I was in college and I'm thinking, what have I learned there that I'm actually utilizing right now? Yeah. And I think I learned better getting myself into the projects, getting into the situations, because that's where you're gonna learn everything. I think college kind of gives you the basic ideas of what happens, but I'm always been a street smart person, not a book smart person. So when you're saying that you you kind of thought the education but you look at the things that you've been able to accomplish and learn throughout your journey, it shows that you have been able to put yourself in those situations and learn as you've
1: gone. You know, friends, friends and family have freaked out over the years when I'm looking for a change of direction or maybe a a shift in in jobs or career, not so much career, because I've been locked into this kind of thing for a long time, just has different flavors and different labels. Um, But when looking through a a job board of some kind, and I see a see a position, and I'll show it to a friend and they'll say, you can't do that." Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. All it takes is you've just got to be the way you ask questions, the way you solve problems, the way you communicate, the way you build trust and the way you are transparent and authentic. That's all you need to make it work. No, okay. no, but you've got to have a degree in nuclear physics. <laughs> no, no, you don't, you don't. But so I've always kind of had this idea that at least as I've got older, I've, I've recognized to play more to my strengths and not expose my weaknesses quite so much. Uh, but in those days, I could do anything. Yep. But it wasn't that I was rash and reckless and took too many risks. It's just that I was never afraid to try. Um, and that's the thing that's kept me going and see and brings the light out of me and see the light in other people that I work with when I'm coaching or training or consulting. To see that light come on that says, um, I have worth, I have value. You're treating me with respect. Therefore, I know that I have uh, there's real integrity involved in this relationship. You're on, you're helping me to see things about myself and to unlock things in me that I didn't know I had. But more than that, you're one of my famous phrase, I'm famous for this phrase. One thing I'm helping people not to do is don't boil the ocean. You know, boil a teacup. You know, start small. One step. Do something new and different and better. And I'm right there with you. I'm not going to just throw you in the deep end. I'm going to be your coach. I'm going to be your guide. Uh, and... That kind of style, I'm not saying it's the only way, but it it's really brings out the best in me and it brings out the best in the people I'm training and coaching. I mean, if I get a chance to go away to Yambu, Saudi Arabia for a couple of months, which I've done many times, and I'm mentoring, training mentors, training coaches, training new leaders, developing new leadership programs, uh, building a corporate university, things like this, that works, not theoretical curriculum, but practical work, work-based work applied learning. And I come home and I'm exhausted. And my family will, my son or my wife will kind of say after a day or so, you know, we really would like you to go away more often. You know, <laughs> and I go, thanks a bunch, you know? No, no, no. The point being is you obviously enjoyed what you were doing. You've come back tired, but you've come back richer. And you've come back pumped and you're such a nice person to be with when you're like this. And I said, okay, let's talk about the other times. no, oh, no, no. You know, just go away more often and come back nice. You know, it's, uh, and so that's a principle that, you know, when I work with companies now, I'm trying to help them understand a, a, a message of organizational wholeness, for example, what does it take to make a person want to give more be more productive, contribute more meaningfully, stay longer with the organization. What does it take? Well, I often work out with them. What are the top 10 reasons why people want to do that? Well, number number 10 is I like my job. And number nine is I like the people I work with. And that's number eight is uh, it's a safe place, mentally, emotionally, physically to work. And you go up the ladder, Comp- compensation and benefits is like number five. Number two, number 3 is i'm valued and treated with respect and i realize what i'm doing has real importance and i and i'm respected and trusted for that number 2 my boss and i have a good relationship people don't leave organizations they leave managers number 3 number 1 i have a career they're investing in my future investing in their future through me now when people have that and when they can discover that and a company will recognize that that's not just a good and right thing to do, but it's actually smart business. Well, then the person thrives, the organi- the department thrives, the colleagues, the peer groups thrive, the organization is successful. The person goes home looking forward to going back to work tomorrow. Uh, their family benefits, the community benefits. There's a wholeness message here. And, and that's what I, in the books that I write or the training that I do and the, uh, Coaching and counseling, coaching, uh, training, uh, consulting that I do. Uh, that's that's the theme, and I, and I actually, when I look back on my Christian upbringing, when I look back on Deming, when I look back on all of those lessons learned, that's it for me. That's it. There's no more important thing for me to do than to help people find their worth, their value, their their potential, and un- and help them unlock it, and contribute to the world around them make it a better place i mean that sounds a bit altruistic but you know i've done it in 30 countries now and uh and it doesn't matter whether it's indian or whether it's russian or whether it's south african or ethiopian or british or american everybody has the same basic fundamental set of needs maslow's hierarchy you can go google it if you want to but one of the ultimate parts of that is to be loved and appreciated and to feel like i belong and i can contribute something of value to the world that I live in. Now, if I can do that either with a Christian message or not, the, the message is still the same and uh, helping build people up and help you know, by the way, I, I this is not a commercial, but but because of all the Western style assessments we have, uh, psychometric assessments, the, the other parts of the world are obsessed with the idea that we must import this Western way of assessing people's potential and worth and value and blah, blah, blah. But it's all produces, it produces, a, it spits out a data point, uh, data points and graphs and, and maps your life out in a very sort of clinical cold way that, you know, they've copied and pasted from the, from the data bank. So because I like the human touch and I like the idea of connecting with people where they really are at, I built my own tool. And it's called wiredness. How are you wired? What's your emotional intelligence DNA? Uh, what what makes you proud? What makes you, how, how do you like to be communicated with? How do you solve problems? How do people recognize your worth and value and potential? And and try to, and I've created a whole range of types of people that they can answer questions about. And then you ask questions like, what would you like to be when you grow up? or, or What movie character, you know, do you sort of most, respond to Uh, what do you want to be if you weren't doing the job you're doing now what would you be well i'd be a formula one race car driver i'd be an fbi agent whatever the case is um, i've got it translated into english and arabic and we're working on russian and i've discovered that no matter what the culture what the country what the level of employee is in the organization they all crave and desire and want the same thing to be treated with respect to be given the chance to unlock their potential. Okay, not everybody's motivated. A lot of people are lazy, sure. A lot of people don't want more. And so I develop a high potential identification methodology. Let's find those people that really want to excel and let's hope they can become great leaders and bring some of the other people with them. You know, So anyway, that's what I do. And uh, it's, I, I, for me, I, I think I've, what I've discovered, back to your question about regrets or mistakes or learning points, I've discovered that I can be inspiring and equipping at the same time. And it's not, and it's not just the content of the message. It's the way in which I deliver it. And for me, it's not just delivering a course, but it's follow up with the coaching and support that goes with it to help them apply that learning in life and on the job. I'm not saying I'm an expert at it, but that's what gives me a buzz. That's, that's what, uh, that's what I do. And, Uh, Whether I do it in church or whether I do it in the uh, world's biggest oil and gas engineering procurement and construction company in Dubai, which I've done, it doesn't matter. It's the same message.
0: The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give someone to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge?
1: It's easy to say this. I know it's not that easy. Um, but And maybe it was easier for me because of my personality. I, I don't know. But authenticity for me is the key. But many people don't feel comfortable trying to be themselves, wanting to be themselves. We're in performance mode all the time. When I go, I've lived outside the U.S. most of my adult life. I come back and I meet executives, Americans, And some of the first questions is, where do you work? What's your title? What kind of house do you have? How big is your car? What's your salary? And it's about performance and image. And we somehow have to get to the point where we're more comfortable with ourselves, with who we really are. But it it takes some practice. It takes some help to unlock that. So number one, be yourself. Try to be authentic. Don't fake it. Be honest with your – you, uh, what your strengths and weaknesses are. But don't look back with regret and beat yourself up. Find – don't, but also don't boil the ocean. Let's just boil a teacup. The other thing is don't stop learning. Uh, be prepared to shut down your phone and your, 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 your computer and actually read a book. Uh, read a book. Uh, it stimulates your imagination. It transports you into other places. I'm writing stories and books now. I've just submitted another story uh, that's based on some of the stuff that we've talked about. And it was so much fun reading it again because it made my imagination go. Um, if there's a way to discover your passion, what is it that really gets you going? What is it? That, is it you like to solve problems? You like to help people. You like to uh, present. You like to fix things. You, Uh, You like watching people learn. You like helping old people. Uh, I do a a process where I help people look at, recall the joys in their life. Just look at the milestones of achievement and joy and try to track them and see there must be a common theme there that even if your family thinks you're stupid, your friends thought you were crazy, when you look back on it, it really gives you a sense of, yeah, I did that. So find out what that is. That's not easy also, but it's possible. Um, And without preaching, you know, consider hanging a sign around your neck that says you're under new management. That might help. So.
0: <laughs> well, David, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We're excited to see what the future has for you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Alex. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe and all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full length episode and video format.
1: What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.